0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture. And this week, we're looking at Slate's political crime perspective, The Queen. Then we return to Monterey in the second season of HBO's hit, Big Little Lies. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, the guy who also has a huge room full of toy trains and pinball machines, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
3: I don't even know what to say to that.
2: You need to sell your toys, Kevin. Kevin, you just sell your toys. Because you will
3: not not be rich. <laughs>
2: <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Joining us from his party cottage on Bear Island on Lake Winnipesaukee, I know, right? surrounded by laughing family and friends, is Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Aloha. Now, Toby, uh, given that I just gave you that introduction, do you want to just take this opportunity to explain away any ambient noise we might catch during the taping of tonight's show?
4: You may be actually catching it right this very second, <laughs>
1: but
4: um, huh. yeah, usually when I have to tape. Uh, a podcast up at the island, like everybody else is down on the dock having fun. But it's raining tonight, so everybody's in the house, and uh, the walls are not super thick. So that'll be, uh, it'll be like you're there.
2: That's awesome. Sort of.
4: Well, if you
2: you wanted to be like you're there, make sure you stay with the show until the outtakes this evening, (laughs) in which we do our impression of what Toby's family is actually talking about while he's (laughs) taping this podcast. (laughs) It's very
4: very hurtful.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Toby. You know we love you. (laughs) <laughs> okay, let's just quickly get through the plugs and promotions portion of the podcast, shall we, Kevin? When you're feeling better, we're gonna come up with a sound effect for that. Okay. All right. So, True Crime Podcast Festival. We're gonna be there July 13th in Chicago, one day only. And you can, if we're giving away another pair of tickets on Patreon right now.
3: Yeah, yeah, we've given away our second pair of tickets, and we have one more pair, which we will give away this week. All you have to do is join us on Patreon at patreoncom slash media. fill out a quick form, and like I said, we're giving away. Uh, one last pair, and you can come see us. Yep. And also you can see folks from about 100 other true crime podcasts from all around the world. Wow. Um, and some of the folks are coming are from- uh, um, Missing
2: Moore Murray. Oh, Tim and Lance. Love those guys. The Vanished, Generation Y, Out of the Shadows. Now, nearly 100. That's a lot of podcasts.
3: Yeah. Remember, you know who's on Out of the, Sh- Out of the Shadows? No. Gemma from The Keepers. Oh, yeah. Gemma, Gemma is
0: coming. You're gonna be yeah. Gemma. Oh. Me and Gemma are gonna drink some Chardonnay. Yep. Oh my god! You and Gemma
3: yeah.
2: are gonna be BFFs. My.
0: Yeah. God. So definitely, yes. all your
3: favorite podcasts will be there.
2: That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to come to Chicago with everyone. Maybe we'll do one of those like river tours or lake tours where we like do the architecture thing. That would be fun.
0: Uh, Cocktails, yeah. Maybe we're we'll going to be Oprah. doing some sort of tour. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe we'll see Oprah. Yeah. We never Ugh. know.
3: And we're doing our own live show. I think we're starting at two thirty.
2: Yeah, we're one of like four live shows.
3: Yeah, not a lot of live shows, so we'll be special. We're, we're a special.
2: marquee. I think something cool to do. Okay. All right. Well, we have one of
0: these, Kevin, this evening. Should we bring in Tom again to do it? I for think Tom us? Hagee's
3: going to fill in great.
0: Tom was so excited, by the way. He was. He almost stroked out, but he's still alive, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All
3: right, press the button. Make him talk. True True crime crime podcast podcast
2: podcast <laughs> game. All right, Kevin, what is our first True Crime Podcast update of the evening? This is a last-minute addition to the program.
3: Yeah, there's a, an article in The Age, which is an Australian publication, and it's looking at the investigation to the death of Bailey Schneider. She's a model from Melbourne. And she was found last year in her parents' home with a a gold-colored cord wrapped around her neck. Um, And police are thinking it's a suicide. However, there's no obvious place in the kitchen where she would have hanged herself. Um, So they're a little puzzled. One connection, though, to a podcast. Her boyfriend was Anthony Hempel, which you will remember him as the boyfriend from Phoebe's Fall. Shut up. Yeah. This no. Is a
2: staircase situation where he just happens to have two girlfriends who died? Yeah. Or is this like he murdered two girlfriends situation?
3: Well, we don't know. Listen, I, mean, I don't
0: want to speculate, but.
3: But you are. Well,
0: <laughs> we have, I don't know if you guys saw, we actually have one of our listeners in our Crime Writers On discussion group who knows this recent victim. Oh, really? no. Yes. Oh, God. So um, the world is small. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and you know, for those who spent a long time, you remember in Phoebe's Fall, the woman died after a plunge down a garbage chute in a high-rise apartment building. Uh, she had her legs severed at the bottom, in the you know some of the the gears, and then the she bled out. Yeah. And uh, after um, an official inquiry, the coroner ruled it uh, death by oh, uh, what was the the term? Misadventure. Misadventure. Yes, death by. Misadventure, but there were others that thought maybe there were some suspicious circumstances. So, police have not accused Anthony uh, Hempel of any wrongdoing, but the investigation continues.
2: Yeah. Well, we all know how, like, the criminal justice and journalism and libel situation in Australia goes. I don't want to, like, violate any of those things. I'm not going to speculate, but I'm sure there's going to be plenty of speculation in the media that we can read in the days and weeks to come, right?
3: Yeah, we'll just keep checking the paper and seeing uh, what investigators are coming up with.
2: All right. Well, we have one more true crime podcast update for everyone, and that is that in the dark update episode that came out after that blockbuster Supreme Court ruling last week.
0: At eight o'clock this morning, our reporters Raymond Tungakar and Curtis Gilbert knocked on the door of Archie Flowers,
1: Curtis Flowers' father. Hi, good morning, Mr. Flowers. Hi, how are you? Maybe maybe come in. They sat down on the
0: couch. Raymond pulled out his phone and together they waited.
1: So I am just going to pull up the Supreme Court website.
0: They waited to see if today would be the day that a decision would come down from the US Supreme Court in the case of Curtis Flowers versus the state of Mississippi. All right,
2: Kevin, I have a question for you. Yeah. We know that the Supreme Court comes out with rulings like two or three days a week this time of the year. So can we just give props to this team for like, you know, they had to be there every day. Like, they're staying there. Like they're camping. Or they in- picked
3: the right day. I don't no, know. No,
2: that is a big investment for a journalism outlet to make to say then, like-
3: Then Can I just then get to my one problem sure. I've had? Sure. So if they're there- Yeah. And they're there to get the reaction- why do we not get the reaction? What do you mean? Why do we not get Archie's reaction to the news? Well,
2: they read him the news and then he reacted to it.
3: No, they read them the news and then they cut to the credits.
2: Ah.
1: So they reversed it. They overturned his conviction.
3: We never hear a gasp or a so We hear him later. Yeah. But we never, I mean, isn't that the whole point of being there? Maybe he to didn't get have his much re- of a reaction. Then say that. I just, yeah. I think Charlie Brown the football on that one.
2: Oh, really? You think they blew it?
3: Why else go? <laughs> I mean, no, I mean seriously. But they got why, that tape of the why, phone call. Why send two people yeah. to Mississippi yeah. and have them go there at the ass crack of dawn to sit with him at the kitchen table, and not get that piece of tape?
2: But maybe there wasn't one. I, I guess. But they did get the piece of tape of the phone call where we we yes. couldn't we couldn't hear Curtis's side because they're not allowed to use that tape. Remember, they told yeah, us they're not yeah, allowed to yeah. use that tape, but we hear his dad talking to him. And that I, was I'm so lovely. I'm just saying
3: I would have made a different decision.
2: Hmm. About you wouldn't have included it what?
3: I would have gotten Archie's reaction, Curtis's yeah. dad's reaction, because that is the whole reason why I'm there. I felt
2: like I got some reaction to that news from Archie.
3: Not Okay.
2: I don't know. I guess I'm just not as critical of this hmm. team. I just I can't I can't bring I myself to be critical of this I team. I know,
3: but you, you can't say they can do no wrong. No, they can do I'm no I'm saying wrong. you whiffed on that one. <laughs> Everything else was good.
2: <laughs> Well, we did get some people's reaction to the news, including two opportunities for Doug Evans to give his reaction. I just want to play a clip of what he had to say when he was specifically asked if he would do things differently now that he has gotten the Supreme Court ruling and what he thinks of that ruling. I've never struck anybody other than from comments that they made about that I felt like they could not be fair and impartial. And it's That's all I can tell you on that.
4: But why have courts repeatedly found otherwise? Courts have
2: also repeatedly found a lot of those things. Uh, Courts are just like me and you. Everybody's
3: got opinions.
2: Everyone has an opinion. And courts have opinions. And I, (laughs) Laura Bricker, all I could do was think of you when I heard this tape. What did Uh, you think?
0: I, I just I, you know what, though, this says so much about this case and it says so much about why this case has gotten to the point that it has where you have the U.S. Supreme Court pretty much coming right out and saying you are a big, giant, racist asshole and He's like, well, I, I got to go get lunch now. I'm like, ah! I like literally just like I'm like, oh, my God. Like if he ends up trying this case again and and they do not take this case away from him in Mississippi, I am like I know I've lost my shit before. But this might be like a different level where I just like get on a plane and go down there.
2: Laura, I'm going to make that whole thing your ringtone when you call me. <laughs> The part where (laughs) I'm sorry, Toby. Ah! What were you going to (laughs) say?
4: Well, I'm not that surprised because I think being critical of Supreme Court decisions, especially around racial things, is not sort of out of the ordinary. I would imagine for him and his supporters, Uh, going back to Brown versus Board of Education, in that it's you know the Supreme Court trying to impose. You know, a different set of values on them. That's the same thing that led, uh, George Wallace to you know stand at the school door and, and all kinds of violence and
2: bullshit Mississippi racism is that what you're trying to say?
4: Yeah, but I, so again, it's like when the Supreme Court hands down something that they feel is telling them about how they're supposed to treat people and you know they don't think it's legitimate. And by they, I mean Doug Jones and and people Doug who would support him. Yeah. Doug Evans, whatever the fuck that guy's name is. So Doug Evans and his supporters, I do think that there's suspicion and some hostility towards the Supreme Court when they get decisions like that. And I don't think that they, you know, necessarily consider them legitimate.
3: I don't see Doug Evans as being a terribly introspective individual. No? (laughs) Yeah. You
0: don't think so? (laughs) No.
3: So the idea he's going to ruminate over what the Supreme Court had to say. And not just immediately go ahead and retry Curtis Flowers for a seventh time. But you also know. Despite everything.
2: But you also know that Doug Evans was totally for Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. You know that, right? There's no way he was not like pro-Kavanaugh at the time,
0: right? There's no way. Uh, I don't even think he was even paying attention. Oh, probably I don't not. think he's thinking outside the state of Mississippi, quite honestly. You're, you're
2: probably right. Well, the other thing that really struck me was hearing from that woman in the episode who talked about how, like... We are all trying to let it go. We're all trying to move on. Why can't Curtis Flowers do the same?
0: Because we was trying to forget everything and settle down the rest of our lives. So I can't understand why he can't do the same.
2: And all I could think was, A, because he didn't do it, and B, if that was like somebody related to you in prison for a crime they probably didn't do... You would totally be on board with the fact that, like, he's not, quote, letting it go. Like, a person on death row should just let it go. Like, even if it's yeah. somebody that, like, you believe did it, Charles Manson probably, like, didn't let it go. And I understand why he didn't, because he was, like, in prison, and that's a horrible place. You know what I mean? Like, the idea that you should yeah. just let it go,
0: it was bananas. Yeah. Well, and it was hard because I was trying to balance that. I was trying to be like, okay, this is one of the victim's mothers. I'm trying to be sympathetic. But then when she said something about Doug Evans and how she's like, you know, poor Doug Evans. Like, he's just like, and I'm like, poor Doug Evans. Yeah. Like, no. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Move on. Laura, your Doug Evans reactions.
3: That's because What's
0: going to happen if I see him someday? It's just going to be like an implosion. It's going to be like
3: It's going to be I a 20.7 on
0: <laughs> the Richter, Richter
3: scale. scale. <laughs> it's
0: going to just And that'll be good because it'll just like knock him out cuz I'll be standing in there on the ground and it'll just be like, "There goes Doug Evans." You do like realize in Wonder Woman, This is a side you? note, like I don't want to like besmirch
2: the brand of a popular convention, but this is literally why we can never go to Crime con because sometimes people like this are there. Show up. Like Ken Kratz was at CrimeCon. <laughs> yeah. And like Nancy Grace was at CrimeCon. And like like we are never allowed to go to that. People are always like, why aren't you at CrimeCon? I'm like, because I don't know what Laura Bricker would do if she ran into Ken Kratz in the fucking hotel bar. She might actually
0: I punch might, him in the face. I'm, no, i just start interrogating him. Mm. And I'd be like, oh, I heard you had a, a $100,000 house or whatever it was that was like his big talking point, you know? Yeah. When he was picking up women. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, moving on. Uh, Our first review of the evening leading off. You may not know her name, but you probably know what she was accused of. Slate's podcast, The Queen, discusses the life of Linda Taylor. Her lucrative 1970s public assistance fraud gave her the original moniker of welfare queen.
1: I first heard Linda Taylor's name six years ago. One of the first stories I read about her said she'd stolen $154,000 in welfare money in a single year, that she drove a bunch of fancy cars, and that she used 80 different aliases. Another article said that Taylor, the quote welfare queen, could change from black to white to Latin with a mere change of a wig. But while the myth of the welfare queen endured, Linda Taylor herself vanished from our collective memory.
2: Rather than being some kind of lazy do-nothing, Taylor was actually a very busy and industrious scam artist running an elaborate con against the government, just one of the scheme in her prolific life of crime. Host Josh Levin says instead of being remembered as a colorful swindler who was both a villain and victim, her story has been co-opted as a political cautionary tale about racial stereotypes, which lingers to this day. We are going to be talking about plot points from the Queen, so if you want to remain spoiler-free for this four-episode podcast, just go to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin, I do want to talk a little bit about the style of this podcast. Yeah, It's very low-key. It continues, and I like to think of as the Leon Nafok tradition of narration and low-key production. What do you think of the delivery of this story and how compact it is and how low-key it is?
3: Mm. I mean, it's kind of dry toast to me. You know, there's not a lot of music A decent amount of interviews here and some archival tape, but, you know, there's not a lot of bells and whistles. It's pretty straightforward. It's only a couple of episodes, and, you know, there's not a lot of filler. So good for them for keeping it substantive. But I don't know if I could say what kind of style it is.
2: Now, Laura, uh, Josh Levin is very transparent in the podcast, and so by extension, Slate is too. They call this podcast a companion to his book. It's similar to the Emily Bazelon podcast charged that we listened to was Mm -hmm. a companion. So this seems to be a thing that slate is doing. What did you think of just sort of the way this was done? It was again, very compact. He goes through a lot of material in just four very short episodes. Did you like it? I mean, did you kind of like the way that it was presented as this book companion?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I thought, well, this is really interesting because it could go either way when you hear, Oh, it's a companion to the book. You're thinking, okay, either they're going to totally just flake out and do something not very good, so that you'll buy the book. Or in this case, you got four episodes with enough information and enough meat about the story that if you really want to know more and go more in depth, you're probably going to read the book. So I thought it was it was really interesting. I wished we had had a little bit more, you know, in terms of voices from people that actually knew her. You know, we had some, but I, I guess just because she was such a fascinating character, I wanted to hear more from people that had sort of one-on-one interactions with her. You know, I don't know if I'm the only one who actually didn't know that the term welfare queen referred to an actual person that sort of was where that came from. Uh, So I was, I was interested to hear her story and I thought kind of a brilliant way to sort of market books, I guess, if, if you do it properly, Yeah, because with people, you know, more and more people listening to podcasts, I think that's a way to meet people that might actually have an interest in this type of book.
2: I I did remember the Welfare Queen narrative and being as part of the Reagan campaign. I mean, I remember it like in the distance, but I also remember reading about it in the years since then. And I do think that so much of today's sort of partisan politics around race can be traced to this moment. I think the podcast does give an interesting look at the use of Linda Taylor's story as sort of like this object lesson. It was a way to do coded racism in politics at a time shortly after the civil rights movement where like Americans saw themselves as being past it and better than it. But uh, Reagan was able to tap into this message about welfare fraud, but it was actually about race. I thought that was really interesting. Um, another interesting aspect to the story, Toby, was journalist George Bliss who kind of built part of his journalism career about getting, quote, a hat trick of stories, you know, three front page stories in his publication about Lena Taylor's story. Um, you know, He'd been doing a bunch of accountability reporting about the social services system, but a story about a person taking advantage of the system and his dubbing her the welfare queen was what got everyone's attention. And then George Bliss, as it turns out, Has his own like set of like super issues. What did you think of that part of the podcast, Toby?
4: I thought it was interesting. I thought it suffered in the same way a lot of the podcasts did, which is to kind of teases you and gives you some information to get you interested enough, but not enough to really feel like you've got the full story. Yeah. Part of the the story that I thought was interesting is about how these things kind of snowball. You know, some guy who's trying to illustrate a phenomenon by taking, you know, a sort of extreme example of it and sort of making her into a case. People read it and they exaggerate it and then people read that and they exaggerate it. And then suddenly it's, you know, she's got three Cadillacs and got one hundred fifty thousand dollars through welfare and wears a fur coat and blah, blah, blah. And it, and it sort of blows completely out of proportion to what was actually going on. Except she did actually Um, wear
2: fur coats to court. Her lawyer did say that was a thing he could not get her to not do, which was very funny. So
4: she didn't, part of the, her story is that she just, she doesn't help herself. Doesn't
2: give a fuck. Yeah.
4: Right. She's just like, this is me, you know, more power to her because her, her background, there wasn't anybody helping her with this stuff. I mean, she, she made her own life. And if she didn't want to compromise, just so that she'd be more palatable to people on a jury or the judge or whatever, you know, more power to her.
2: Yeah, I kept getting, Toby, like this sense that, you know, you sort of get these hints and this is the the flaw of the podcast. This is like too efficient in in a lot of ways. But you get all these hints that you have this character here, if it were – a white guy operating in the same era. Like I think of like a, a Frank Abignal, Remember that con artist mm-hmm. who was the center of that movie Catch, Catch Me if You Can. Can? You know, like if it were sort of a white guy, like there's a lot of like folk hero stuff in this origin story of Linda Taylor. You hear about like the stuff she did, you know, helping that family get out of their sharecropping arrangement and her sort of whole like one on camera line.
3: How'd you do it, Linda? Well, compared to some of you
2: white people, I think I've done pretty damn good to be black. That girl. Don't you feel like if this was a different person cast in this story, it would be framed in a very different way in terms of the pop culture, right?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, isn't that part of, I I feel like that's part of his task, right? Is that he's trying to reframe it and take it from being not very accurate and simplistic and racist where she's a woman who's exploiting the welfare system to, I guess, a more colorful and nuanced and truthful position, which is she was somebody who came from nothing at all and with no allies and figured out a way through sort of force of personality and personal wherewithal or whatever to make something of herself. And she was an extremely successful Con artist. Apparently, the issue for me was that you know it's clearly a teaser for the book. So, what was the name of that that lottery game they played in Chicago? Policy. policy. Like I thought that was fascinating, and they barely talked about it. Mm. And they don't even really tell you what it is. Like I had to, I went and I looked it up.
3: Yeah, you have to go to my book, American Sweepstakes, by Kevin Flynn. Oh, that's right. From uh, yeah, exactly. H.
2: Did you write about policy in your book?
3: Uh yeah, it's all the numbers game. is what's what it is. Why was it called yeah. policy in Chicago? Uh, I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's like playing the numbers.
3: It's exactly what it is.
2: And it was take oh, what I thought was interesting, I agree with you that like I would have loved more on it because they talked about how there was this whole economy around policy in Chicago and like the policy barons like funded the arts and they were like like employed tons of people, runners and like you know, money handlers and bookmakers. It was a, it was very interesting, sort of like look at the economy of that. So, the Kevin, the question I wanted to ask you was, you know, this portrait of Bliss, George Bliss, who really does take up like the whole first episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm. He apparently is was a legitimate journalist.
3: Yeah, and very was, respected journalist, and yeah.
2: then lost it. Was hired by right. a conservative publication to write an article just so Ronald Reagan would have an article to quote. Ugh.
3: Well, I'll say that at the time that is not uncommon the practice, certainly in freelancing. Is it
2: uncommon now? Yeah,
3: it's uncommon now. For a
2: for something to be written just so a person can quote it, a president or a presidential candidate can quote it. I don't think
0: it's that uncommon now. I mean, well, it's like now how when you you know, when you're running on social media and you see news stories come up and you look at them and some of the outlets are like, you're like, Who is this? This isn't even a news outlet. I mean, I think that's kind of what you're getting at. I mean, now it's like there's uh, many more of those outlets to choose from on both sides of the aisle. Um, whereas when this took place, I feel like we're, you know, it sounds like George Bliss was, you know, he was a pretty respected journalist. and And so that was the part that I found a little bit odd, that he was voluntarily contributing in that capacity where it was obviously being used for that purpose. Whereas now it's like, Pretty obvious, uh, you know, regardless of which side of an issue somebody's coming down on when you see these different purported media outlets that people are quoting from. You're like, that's not a real media outlet. It's a little more transparent now, I think, if you uh, pay attention. Whereas then I think if you saw this guy's name, you'd be like, hey, he's legitimate. You know what I mean?
3: I say I think that Josh did a good job in the podcast showing that George Bliss was pretty accurate and faithful to the actual numbers. Until he wasn't. Yeah. But, you know, there was a, it was really, you know, the, the way all the stats got blown out of proportion each time that the story was told. It just made it a better story, Not, but not a better news story.
2: Yeah. And then George Bliss went on to do a murder-suicide in his own family.
3: Don't draw too sharp a no, line no, no, between no, no, no. the I'm, welfare queen story and his murder-suicide. But, but did they, yeah.
0: they didn't actually say, I was wondering, did he have like some sort of early dementia or like some, like what was, yeah, they never I, really, I, that's what it sounded like. It seemed but like it, his colleagues
2: were saying that there was something wrong with him. And that yeah. like, and that was just the end of a story. But like this descent into like doing this This Mm -hmm. piece of journalism was a part of the journey there. And I'm not saying, obviously, that, like, the murder-suicide had anything to do with this, but it's just sort of, like, chose to show, like, the George Bliss in the heyday of his career likely would not have made these same decisions, which, I don't know, I thought that was interesting. Do you guys think—so, Linda Taylor, obviously, is the sort of, like, progenitor of this story of— a way to politically get around talking about race by making it about something like fraud or making it about something like crime or something about, like, people being taken advantage of. But it's kind of about race. Do you guys think that without this story, we would have gotten to a place where we legitimately looked at corruption and fraud? Or is welfare just doomed to be vilified because... It's so easily tied politically to these undertones of race that people want to just sort of like put under the covers and not expressly say.
3: I mean, the question I guess you're asking is if there were no Linda Taylor, would we have to invent her?
2: Yeah, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> well, perhaps,
3: perhaps. I mean, we all can admit in, in every government program there's waste and abuse. There are people who are bad actors trying to game the system. She drew... The attention because the numbers were so big, but you know she was a very skilled criminal, and what ended up happening is that instead of this, you know, as we go along and and the programs mature, the question doesn't be about how do we make it more efficient. It ends up getting painted that the corruption isn't just being part of the program, that it's not people who are collecting welfare who are doing other things to manipulate the system. It's just collecting welfare in and of itself... Is the crime. Is the crime. Right. Yeah, and the fact that the woman who was the poster child for the abuse also happened to be black fit very neatly into the narrative that some people wanted to tell.
2: Now, Toby, we do get this like kind of more nuanced picture of Lynna Taylor, a mixed-race child whose family either neglected her or totally denied her heritage, or in some cases perhaps went to extreme lengths to sort of suppress the family's secret that one of their relatives was black. The idea that she would then go on to reinvent herself, the woman who was a child at the time, who she became friends with her mom, talks about the fact that she came back to the house a few times, used a different name every single time and really sort of ingratiated herself to her family. Like, it's an understandable character arc, right? That somebody who comes from that situation would turn into a chameleon who was sometimes helpful and sometimes harmful.
4: Right. You know, when somebody says, I think it's at the beginning where they said there was something wrong with her, her head because of something that happened early in her life. And it does seem as though for like the, you know, pop psychology or whatever, that children who aren't nurtured when they're infants have a hard time making connections with people, empathetic connections. Well, I'm sympathetic to her. She seems like a sociopath, right? In that she, uses people for what she needs to get. And sometimes that's helpful to those people as well. And then other times it's less so. Right. The story is really interesting. And I'm sure I'm sure the book is a good read.
2: I feel bad for Jelly. I'm just gonna say it. I feel really bad for poor Jelly, Uncle Jelly. <laughs> <laughs>
4: you
3: like jelly sandwiches. <laughs> I he do the name stuck
2: the name stuck. Everybody's nicknames in this podcast—they just stuck. Like one thing happens, then you have that nickname forever.
3: You think you did like pastrami? hey pastrami.
0: Hey, I just liked the safe part where they—they they thought there were in the vault where they were going to have to like blast open the vault. Oh and yeah. Then they did. And then there was nothing in it. I'm like, oh, I was like, what a
2: letdown. Let me. Do, well, that was the thing for such a so for so efficient of a podcast that where he basically glossed over so many details and just told you like the end instead of like the what happened. There was an awful lot of build up to the workers at the courthouse trying to get that safe yeah. open only to <laughs> yeah. find out. The file was just here on a
0: shelf. It was just
2: mislabeled.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was like, seriously? So disappointing. I thought that was gonna be a fun twist. All right. Well, let's do what we do.
2: Let's give the Slate podcast, The Queen, our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Would you recommend to the listeners of this fine podcast, Crime Writers on, that they check out this four part
0: series from Slate? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the queen, Laura Bricker? I'm going to start with you. Um, I'm going to go with thumbs up. It's not like a super enthusiastic thumbs up, but I think that this was a really interesting story. I think the four episodes did what they set out to do, which was, you know, they're a companion to the book where you can get much more in-depth information and more details of the story. But overall, I mean, it's it's really interesting. It kind of gives you the general overview of the highlights of this case from the welfare queen section to her really interesting past like 10 years before where there was some other shenanigans going on and then some totally random excursion with the sharecroppers which I still don't understand but it's <laughs> it's an interesting
2: story. What about you Toby thumbs up or thumbs down for the queen from slate?
4: Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. I mean, it's a little frustrating cuz you just you're just being teased and I think it could have been like a really really good like eight part podcast but you know, that being said, Yeah, the the whole thing I think is pretty interesting. You know, I think it's it's a good corrective to sort of a political myth that continues to this day. I think so. Thumbs up.
2: I'm giving it a thumbs up too. I have some of the same reservations that you do, Toby. I think it was in some ways too efficient. You know, I appreciate being told that they're. You know, this is based on whatever. This is based on my book. That transparency stuff. But either do a podcast or have me read your book. Um, And I feel like this was in some ways like the um, Josh's book for dummies version of his book. Like there was some holding back of actually telling us the story, maybe in attempt to get us to read the book. I don't think if I had heard more of the story, I would be less inclined or more inclined to read the book. You're either the kind of person who's going to buy and read a book like this or you're not. I am definitely the kind of person who would listen to a podcast like this. And if I could tell my friends at Slate anything, it would be to invest a little bit more time in these book project podcasts. Trust the audience. You know, The podcast is obviously monetized. There were tons of ads in it. Just because it's a great companion doesn't mean it also can't be a great thing and of its own. So it's a thumbs up for me. But like Toby, I would have liked it to be longer, gone into more detail. The couple of first-person interviews in this podcast were great. They could have been standalone episodes instead of half of short episodes. So I want more from the Queen. I liked it that much. So thumbs up for me.
3: I'm also a thumbs up. Um, is this a fantastic podcast? It, it reminds me kind of like Man in the Window where the source material is really great. It's an interesting story. It's told well and competently, but it doesn't really have some sort of pizzazz or some kind of magic that makes me say, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing and download this podcast. I do personally like stories about historical tidbits and little things you didn't know. The idea that the welfare queen was an actual one person, and the reason that so much attention was given to her was not because she was just a great big cheat. It was that she was a fantastic con woman that ran a a very intricate scheme to defraud the government. And then how her story got co-opted as a dog whistle was also pretty interesting. And so I think that that's really good. It's good enough to listen to. And I do like a story where somebody, you know, is able to reinvent themselves.
0: Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details.
1: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: Moving on. The 2017 HBO hit Big Little Lies is back with a second season, picking up in the weeks after the death of domestic abuser Perry Wright. The five women characters at the center of the story are responding differently to keeping the secret of his killing, and now asking questions is Perry's mother, played by Meryl Streep.
1: You left some things out, didn't you? The fact that he fathered
3: another child, you left that out. That you planned to move, that you rented an
1: apartment, you left that out. That you were planning to leave him the very night he died. You left that out.
2: Madeline's marriage is falling apart. Celeste's codependent relationship with her husband continues even after his death. And while Jane is moving on, Bonnie remains haunted for pushing Perry down those stairs. But will the legal and financial pressure on Renata be the thing that breaks their pact of silence? Now we are gonna be talking about plot points for season two of Big Little Lies. So to remain spoiler free, go to the time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review for season two. We just gotta go there first, guys. Meryl Streep playing Perry's grieving slash terrifying mother. Lara Bricker, what are your thoughts on Meryl Streep in this cast?
0: I'm not sure what season two would really be without Meryl Streep at this point. Mm. She's fucking awesome. I mean, I'm just waiting for her to snap in this like crazy psycho sort of scene where all of a sudden she's like and that's it and she's been building up to that she's just masterful I love the part where there was one of the parts where she was talking and she pulled the little cross up onto her chin sort of (laughs) I was like whoa. Um, so yeah Meryl Streep is killing it
2: Toby what do you think about sort of the evolution of these characters you know we have Renata and Madeline sort of like going down one road Nicole Kidman's character going down another um And of course, Zoe Kravitz, Ziggy's mom, Jane, you know, they're the relatable ones. What do you think this is all about in the show? Like, what are they trying to tell us with where these characters are going?
4: You know, to a certain extent, uh, you know, part of it is just the plotting is you amp up the pressure on them. You're trying to undermine things that are super important to them. In the case of Renata and Madeline, Renata, it's clearly, it's money, and Madeline, it's she has these sort of, I don't know if it's self-esteem, her feelings about herself, and that her husband, Ed, is like kind of this rock for her, and although she kind of takes him for granted, she also realizes how much she's dependent upon him. So when you kind of remove those from those two characters' lives, you know, it just amps up the pressure. I think that the Nicole Kidman, the Celeste plot line is pretty interesting. So she's obviously got like these very conflicted feelings about, about Perry's death. And then the fact that Perry's mom is there sort of allows her to deal with him in certain ways to sort of affirm that, you know, he was abusive and things like that. Where when she's kind of by herself, she's more sort of affected by his absence I don't know. I think the way it's being done seems really good to me with the only person who seems not to be under a new and different kind of pressure is Jane. Although I assume that something's going to happen there to put her under pressure as well. While Bonnie is sort of haunted by actually making the push, you know, she doesn't have these sort of external Pressures other than her, like voodoo mom. Yeah, the voodoo mom, yeah. by the way, is a s- strange. <laughs> Literally, yeah, a you have one African American yeah. character in the entire thing, and she's like a voodoo person. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah,
2: that was a lot. It was a little bizarre. I have to say, that was the one thing where I was like, okay, that's a lot. I actually uh-huh. thought that was kind of going down the road of some of the sort of like, because it's also it's a lot of what I, I do love about this show, is it does handle so many things without telling you it's handling them. I think the racial dynamics in the show are super interesting and good and handled really well until the Voodoo Mom thing happened. And then I was like, okay, (laughs) we have overstepped with that. Because before that, it was just this very interesting story about – this black woman married to this white guy in this circle who already is like a little bit on the outside because she's like the yoga lady and she's the earthy one. And she's the one with like the younger. conscience and she's younger and she's already other in so many ways. Like you don't really need to add voodoo mom to that. Too. Right. But anyway, um, that being said, Kevin, I think one of the most interesting aspects of big little lies season two is is dealing with the aftermath of the physically abusive relationship between Celeste and Perry. Perry's dead. Yeah. And Celeste is mourning him even though he was definitely going to kill her at some point.
3: And and missing him. Yes. On a very strange level. Is that strange. You're right. I, I don't mean strange like that. It's very complex. And it's a very interesting look at how to develop that character. I'm sure this is something that happens very often in real life that even when you've extracted from an abusive partner the codependency remains and it's hard to find yourself and she's having trouble finding herself and they're not afraid of making it look like we are yelling at the TV what are you doing Uh, working in a way that is unexpected to us which is uh, you know good character development I want to see where this goes
2: yeah I mean she's masturbating to videos of her
0: husband I know That's when I was just like, oh, man. But their relationship, the abuse was very
2: much tied to their sexual relationship. As Meryl
0: Streep's horrifying
2: character, Mary Louise, is super psyched to point out. (laughs) Celeste has
1: shared with me that she and Perry had a a complicated sex life. One that included violence. She shared
4: that with you?
1: Yes. And I'm... It makes me wonder if perhaps he misinterpreted or misread a signal from you. Your son raped me. And as he was doing so, I was
2: screaming for him to get off. Laura, question for you. Is there more than one therapist in Monterey, California? (laughs) <laughs> Apparently
0: not, because now Madeline and her husband are going to the same therapist. Um, unless this is the best therapist, so they're all getting in. Oh, I have a good therapist, you can get in. But I'm like, oh look, now everybody's who's next? Who's next in her office? You know? <laughs> well
3: there's only one second grade teacher, so I guess And the yeah. fact
0: that it's Calamity Jane from Deadwood makes it even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else want to smack the guy who went on the date with Jane? Like I'm all for like being sustainable, but he was like such a stereotype in his fish ordering narrative there I was like oh my god I hope he ends up being an evil character I hope he ended up getting a farm raised piece of fish I think
2: swipe left on Ed Jesus Christ Ed I mean not I mean granted Madeline did commit a sin in her marriage he's a bump he's a bump on a
3: log you're saying he can't be angry
0: no, he can, he, he's just he got no personality. He's got nothing interesting. I don't know. Is he angry or is he just knowing the power
2: that being angry affords him?
3: Uh, maybe both.
0: Maybe he's going to be a killer next.
2: All right. Well, I do want to talk about Renata, Laura Dern's <laughs> character.
1: We stand to be broke by the end of the year, and it might even be soon. Hold on, hold on. Hold
3: on. Hold on. I
1: don't... Listen, 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 listen. Annabella's is going to be okay. I just, they can't touch her trust. It's, it's irrevocable. But I didn't sign anything. No, no, I didn't I know, do anything. Didn't, so my money's I know, safe. I know you didn't. I but it's community property. Amabella's trust is is fucking goddamn. I'm not gonna not be yeah. rich. It I'm not yeah. have you. This, this, this could be like a positive thing, you know. That that it like there are chapters of life. This I will not not be rich.
3: Best line. All year. (laughs) Best line.
2: The Renata storyline, we got some of it last year. She is this like Sheryl Sandberg style, you know, like empowered tech executive, also sort of pop star in the culture kind of person. And in this season, we sort of get a little bit more of a look, not deeper into the character, but just sort of more deeply into how that kind of like virus runs in her family. And I think, you know, aside from the that great line, I will not not be rich, one of the more interesting looks into just sort of like the rich American life was... Dr. Bo Peep, the therapist they hire for their stupidly named daughter, <laughs> Amabella.
3: <laughs>
2: Toby, what do you think of this look? at? I mean, I can only think it's like a really sardonic commentary on American Excess. If there's something else there, please tell me. But what do you think of this family and how they're portrayed in this show?
4: With the Bo Peep thing, there's got to be some model for that. <laughs> there's got to be some... It's going to be
2: based on something? That's
4: got to be coming from something. But, um, you know, she's an interesting character in that The more you look at her, the sort of the shallower she becomes. Like I don't know, she's not a very attractive person as far as I'm concerned. And
2: you mean as a person, not like as a woman, but like as a person.
4: That's exactly what he meant.
2: I'm just double checking because she's pretty fucking hot, and I want to make sure that Toby is not blind. It's a vision test.
4: Do I normally like? Comment on personal life. No, but if, no. This, if this is
2: somebody's first episode with us, I just want them to know that that's not right. what you're doing. Yeah. Okay, I'm
4: not going to go through and rate all the females on this <laughs> according to their looks. But Laura um, Dern has some long legs. Yeah. <laughs> God, Reese Witherspoon, please. Uh-huh. Um, like, it, it's kind of a weird choice in that You're kind of exposing her for having sort of like the basis of needs and desires in her value system is about money and sort of material success. I think even as far as her daughter seems to be mostly something she's something that she can use to threaten people about. Yeah. She doesn't show affection to her daughter as much as she like stresses people out about how they're going to deal with her.
0: You're pitiful. Okay, this is going
4: to come as a shock to you. This school
1: is actually here to serve all the children, not just Amabella.
0: You think because of this whole bankruptcy thing, that the school thinks I don't matter? (laughs) I will be rich again. I will rise up. I will buy a fucking polar bear for every kid in this school. And then I will squish you like the bug that you are. Pretends like he's not a smoker, hasn't been laid in 15 fucking years. Don't you talk to me like that. And you can't be bothered to squish you. You're a
3: model
1: citizen, Renata. I told you, these second grade mothers, they are Shakespearean.
3: That woman, she's the fucking Medusa of Monterey. I
2: think you're right, Toby. And I think that, you know, I see a lot of like people on social media, like loving That character this season and what especially what Laura Dern is doing with her and how she's performing her, it's it's a conundrum because she's sort of like playing this like feminist badass embracing totally unfeminist, like regressive ideals. I mean, the Bo Peep doctor is such a great example of that. Like look at the archetype of like a professional provider they're bringing into their home. To talk to their daughter, a woman dressed up like little Bo Peep. with like, It's like fucking absurd. (laughs) In addition to kind of being about the money stuff. But another great storyline where they're doing that, I think, and where they're basically showing us this is who we thought it was in the first place, but in a really clever way, is the storyline around Madeline.
3: Do you think Madeline's a good person?
2: I think Madeline is a lost and undeveloped person. Is she a
3: hero or an anti-hero? I think
2: she's an undeveloped person. I don't think she's either. I think she's an undeveloped person. She's sort of stuck in time. But I, but I mean, time. from the
3: story writing, I don't know technical part. I don't know yet. She's supposed to be somebody we're rooting for, or is she, or is she like Don Draper? I, I think the New York Post actually wrote, wrote this article about comparing her to Don Draper, and it's funny because every time they have a photo of her, she's doing that thing with her arm, like drapering. you know. And the I I think it's intentional. I, I think that you know we're not supposed to feel that she is the stay-at-home cookie mom, all-American sweetheart. That there's something a little more self-destructive and self-interested about her.
2: But see, that's what I like about it. because It's very normal. Oh,
3: yeah, I like that, too. It's all I'm, very that's what normal. I mean.
2: And that's the thing. Like, this show is very real estate porny in that yeah. everybody lives in this, like, heightened place. But the idea of, like, a 40-something-year-old woman who, in this, this show, very gracefully reveals is just riddled with insecurity because... She doesn't belong where she is because she never graduated college. Like she married like one successful guy and another successful guy. Becoming obsessed with her own kids not going to college. Acting out by sort of having the sexy affair because she's married to this like guy who's loving but boring. It is so fucking relatable. Does she have to be a hero mm-hmm. or a villain? Can't she just be that?
4: The first season she seemed to me to be sort of the heart of the show. Like it, it always seemed like she was the central figure even when there's other stuff was going on, like she seemed to be like the gravity around which everything revolved. And that doesn't seem to me to be the case this season. Right. This season it seems a lot more spread around. And I don't I don't feel as though I can identify right now like who is the the center of gravity for this season. Uh if there's even gonna be one. I tend to think that you're supposed to be sympathetic. To her, that she's like a good person who makes mistakes because of some sort of critical flaw. But at the same time, it's like kind of shitty mistakes.
3: Well, this is the challenge always of taking some something that is complete in and of itself, season one of Big Little Lies, which is just supposed to be Big Little Lies ending, all done. Based on the book. Stop, full stop. And then opening it up again and creating a part to another story when everything was sort of neat. You're... You're digging up in the dirt again and resetting this. And, of course, the big structure of the first season is it's a mystery. And it's going to pay off narratively at the end when we find out who died and who killed them, right? We don't have it this time. We have the same characters, the same kind of interactions and actresses. And so we can play, like, with a lot of that same material. But the story is going to be different because the narrative climax here has to be when the secret is revealed. Mm. And who breaks it and everything, and that's what or we're how driving it ends towards.
0: Up not being revealed. Yeah. Somehow yeah. that's
3: that's the release. That's the climax.
0: That's what I was thinking about this season as well, Kevin. I was thinking the way, and it kind of goes into what Toby was saying earlier. The way it's being structures, structured is we're watching the characters from the first season not only deal with the aftermath of Perry dying, but now their lives are falling apart in different ways. And so for me, I'm watching it thinking, okay, so they're all. Their lives are crumbling around them. And the question is, which one of them with their lives crumbling is going to get to that point of vulnerability where they spill the beans about what really happened? And so it's like, I feel like I want to have like a little like a little chart, like a little bingo chart. Like, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Bonnie? Is she finally going to just be racked with guilt? Is her mom going to put a voodoo spell on her? Um, is it going to be Madeline? Is it going to be Celeste? Like, or... Is Meryl Streep going to figure it out and like take them all down? So no, Renata's um, going to
3: give them all up for some sort of consideration for her husband because <laughs> so, she will not. So he can keep this train rich. table. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so,
0: a very good theory.
3: That's my theory.
4: So my question is, what exactly is their legal jeopardy? So even if it all comes out, why aren't they just like, look, you know, sorry, we panicked. It, it was like an intense thing. We lied, but this is what really happened. And yeah, we've got these various things of proof. Sorry,
2: they have a corroborating witness in the therapist, right? Who right. Celeste... are you really
4: gonna? Are you really gonna like put us in jail? for right. this? Because it was it was totally self defense. I mean, people have got wounds, you know, oh. the rape and the, the abuse and all this stuff. So to a certain extent, I'm like, I, I'm not sure what the stakes are for these women.
2: Well, I do think that there's one very high stakes thing, which is right at the center of the show, which they sometimes let you forget because it becomes so about the women. The opening credits of the show most prominently features the kids marching in that like little parade line, mm-hmm. mugging for their faces. One of the very wonderful and subversive points of this show, I think, is the American obsession with parenting and sort of the protecting kids at any cost and living like this parallel life of both a mother and a woman. And I think that's where the stakes are for these characters is these women were complicit in the murder of the father of three of the children in this story. And I think that a huge part of the show is about like the unbelievable lengths we go to probably really stupidly to shield our kids from reality.
3: Yeah, a theme here is about motherhood. And yeah. this is why I think right. they bring They in the second season, they bring in even more mothers, the mother's mothers or mother in law or whatever. And she makes
0: it a horror movie.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no
0: kidding. Yeah. And the kids and all know what's going on, too.
4: Ziggy at one point says during one of the classes, he's like, that's what mothers do. They lie to protect the people they love.
2: Right. <laughs> it's fucked up.
4: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> it's super fucked up. It's just another layer of the show. It's so funny because on the surface of the show, it just seems like a show about rich white ladies doing rich white lady things and like you only talk about it for five minutes before you get to like so many other things and I do believe this is turning into a horror film this season I really do I feel so much suspense every fucking time Meryl Streep is on the screen
0: I want to (laughs) die because she's going to go crazy all of a sudden she's going to be like and that's it She's bananas. I mean, the thing I keep thinking when I look at her, Rebecca, is I keep thinking of like the cycle of abuse and how, you know, when somebody's an abuser, usually you can trace this back to them being abused as a child. So I keep looking at Meryl Streep thinking, was she the abuser? Or was she the abused mm. in his family dynamic? And I, that's when I'm very, I'm kind of waiting for that to come out. I'm kind of hoping we we learn more about Perry's childhood from her.
2: I don't want to hear about Meryl Streep's sex life and how that played into things. I just don't want to hear it. That character creeps me the <laughs> well, fuck she may out. also
4: have been, she she may have not stepped in. And, and how did Perry's brother die as an infant?
2: That's right. Yeah, you know? Know?
4: And that just kind of continues that she's like trying to, you know, make amends by figuring out what happened to him.
2: And she doesn't like short people either. She's a very short...
4: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah that's she's a right. short
2: person racist. <laughs>
4: well, <laughs> she had a friend yeah. that she thought was so great. Yeah. She was betrayed. You know,
0: oh, a short friend.
3: I- I'm not one of those people who deifies Meryl Streep. It's Why like not? Every- What's the matter with you? Well, I mean, she's obviously a great actress, but it seems like every movie she's in, it's like, oh, we yeah. have to give it a Golden Globe, and it's to the point where... I kinda of roll my eyes and I feel like it's sort of a, a fake gravitas to But you
2: get it now, don't you?
3: I will say, in this role <laughs> <laughs> I don't see anybody else doing this but Meryl Streep. And she, she does it.
2: Terrifyingly. And
3: it's yeah, and it's real and it's and, and yeah, yeah, you can feel the manipulation come right through. I mean, she's gonna win something for this, I hope. Yeah, and by I mean, the she, way, she wins for all this other stuff. So well, the she's fact
2: that you this. that you don't deify Meryl Streep means you're just not watching enough Meryl Streep in, in movies, and like she's uh,
4: well. she's this
0: great in it literally in everything. That is the Meryl Streep. Haven't
4: part. you seen Mamma Mia too, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: oh yeah, I'll tell you what, Fireman Ken was super happy when I made him watch that. I, don't think, he, I think he lasted about five minutes. <laughs>
2: All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's let the listeners of this fine program know, should
0: you check out Big Little Lies season two? Thumbs up or thumbs down so far? Lara Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Absolutely. This show is so fun. Even the music in this show makes the show as you have the intro. Um, Meryl Streep totally makes season two and um, some shit's going to go down. I can just tell. I can't wait. What do you think, Toby? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Big Little Lies season two so far?
4: Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's really hard to come up with a sequel that's just as compelling as a really good first season, and I think they've totally done it. I can't wait for Sunday night.
2: I agree. I'm loving Big Little Lies season two. And I'm going to go one step farther and say they've actually taken out some of the things that were stupid about season one. Like I remember one of the things that Toby, you and I thought was really stupid. was Madeline's daughter's like obsessive music curation genius.
4: Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's gone.
2: It's gone this season. They just got rid of it because it's fucking unnecessary. It is unnecessary. I am loving season two. The tension is killing me. It's turning into a little bit of a horror film, and there are so many subtle, layered messages about women, about race, about upper middle class and, and 1% America and all the dynamics around uh, domestic violence and the sham that is some marriages. Like, I am really loving the season. I'm really loving it. Hey, what about you?
3: Yeah, I'm a thumbs up for season two of Big Little Lies. Great cast. I mean, when you win as many Emmy Awards as they did... It's a tough task to even meet where you were before. I think in some ways they're exceeding it. where they're picking up seems natural and logical, and it's just, again, another great deep exploration of human nature and uh, the situations we put one another in. All great performances, but Meryl Streep, she is, she's giving a, uh, a filet mignon-type performance.
1: Consumer Cellular. When Freedom Calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5GB data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023.
2: Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call... The crime crime of the week. Of the week. A Scottish man was the victim of an unsavory crime while driving. Cameron Payton said he was being tailgated by a couple in a Ford Galaxy, so he let the van pass him. The tailgaters waited for him down the road, and when he approached, they threw an entire tub of garlic sauce at his car. In case you can't picture it, imagine what it would look like if an entire flock of seagulls shit on your car after going through the dumpster of an Italian restaurant. (laughs) In the days that followed, Peyton could not let go of this random, random attack. He started carrying in his glove box his own container of garlic sauce, just in case he ever came across the perps again. Not a big container, he says, just the wee ones you get to dip your pizza crust in. Sure enough, a few days later, he spotted the Ford Galaxy and followed it to a supermarket parking lot. When the driver stopped at the ATM with a video recording, Peyton got out and side-armed his own garlic sauce into the van's door. So goes the saying, if you live by the garlic sauce, you die by the garlic sauce. So panel, surely this transgression will not stand. How will the couple in the Ford Galaxy... Choose to escalate this
0: conflict. Lar
2: Bricker, what do you think?
0: What was that thing that a few years ago? My son was making all the time slime, where you were like mixing up the homemade slime that looked like jello. I'm Whoa. gonna go with that. Throwing yeah. some slime at the van. Is That's that how- edible? No, but I did see recently that there is a new edible version that Jell-O is putting out because kids were probably eating it before and it has like borax <laughs> in it. So
1: <laughs> yeah.
4: That's an escalation.
0: Yeah. Toy Ball, how do you think this conflict will escalate
2: after this garlic sauce debacle?
4: Breadsticks at 20 paces. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Kevin Flynn, surely this aggression will not stand. How will the couple in this Ford Galaxy choose to isolate this conflict?
3: Tartar sauce water gun.
2: <laughs> oh. I was thinking garlic knot trebuchet myself. Ah. All right, we Ooh. should probably end it on that. And before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <coughs> oh,
0: we have something very new this week. We have a Peacock of the Week. What?
3: Whoa. Yes.
0: (laughs) Ben, our friend Ben, who is part of the stage management crew at the, and I'm going to totally mispronounce this, Glyndebourne Opera House in England, Mm -hmm. uh, sent a lovely photo of Penelope the Peacock, one of the many peacocks roaming the grounds of the Opera House, with her clutch of four new baby pea chicks oh. and I was concerned because I had heard I don't know if you guys had heard that peacocks were aggressive and Ben says she's not aggressive she's a little protective of her chicks but they don't seem to be too bothered some of them have been known to make an inspection of the props department once or twice and the males are sometimes seen with their tails on display in the car park hmm. well Penelope the peacock that is a new
2: addition to our pet of the week category on <laughs> this fine podcast
4: hold on a second <laughs> how, how, yes. A peacock is male. Yeah. Why is it named Penelope? What's going on? Is peahen? Penelope,
0: listen. Well, this is gender pe- fluidity at work, Toby. Uh, there can't be. There right. can't be. No, there's not. Well, uh, how does, the, Penelope, how the does colorful, Penelope have four
2: little? The colorful ones. Baby? Don't be so heteronormative, Toby.
4: <laughs> a boy can be named <laughs> Penelope. The, the colorful ones are males. Peahens are like brown.
0: Uh, well, Penelope the Peacock looks pretty hey, fine Pride to it's Pride Month. I, Just I let, it, let, it, yeah. let it slide, Toby. <laughs> let <laughs> let it,
3: go, it slide, Toby.
0: <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, if people want to suggest to you their
2: gender-bucking, non-heteronormative animals <laughs> to be Cat or Pet of the Week next week, how can they find you online?
0: At Laura Bricker.
2: And Toby Ball, if people want to visit you by boat on your fine island in the middle of Lake Winnipesaukee, how can they find you on Twitter? <laughs>
4: How's that going (laughs) to work? This show is getting more and more confusing. You can find me at TobyBallonH. I'm not sure if that's going to get you to the island. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to send you a lozenge, how can they find you on Twitter?
4: I'm at Kevin P.
3: Flynn.
2: And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at RebLavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way, but it's boring. Go there and join the group. Support the show on Patreon.com slash PartnersInCrimeMedia and you will get... The Crime Writers on After Show in your feed right now. Married with Podcast. Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio otherwise known as Studio C the closet in our basement where Laura Dern cannot not be rich. On behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. 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 So which one of you is currently taping with a party going on in the background?
4: Uh that's me. Okay. I'll, I'll be I'll be hitting mute once we start.
2: Okay, so we we'll 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 just have party. to tell say something because that's going to be definitely going to be in the audio. So
4: uh, I'll I'll just I'll oh, tell I them can the, hear the like, party. <laughs> Well the problem is like the, these walls are like paper.
0: Remember when we had the fireworks last year? That was fun.
4: Yeah. <laughs> it's more of that.
0: They seem especially gleeful tonight. <laughs> I know. Is it your mom and dad?
4: We've got friends from California who are there, so okay. there's a little bit of wine.
0: Literally, everything <gasps> is like this.
2: <laughs> Toby's so funny. He's recording a podcast. <laughs> yeah, oh, Toby. <laughs> It gets so much funnier when Toby's not in the room with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
4: I was all right. gone. I was literally, I was gone. I woke up at six in the morning, like drove down to Lowell. Took a like boat an hour and to minutes. To Took the boat to Browns, drove down the Lowell, spent the day at Lowell, drove two hours back. It was pouring rain in the boat. I showed up. It was like I'd been in a shower with ah. all my clothes on. <laughs> and then I changed eight and then came up here.
2: You came up here and it's everyone a, is it's like... It's been a whirlwind. was oh, like Toby's <laughs> day. It was so
4: terrible. You came in and
2: Poor Toby had to go in the boat.
3: <laughs>
4: Do you <laughs> think
2: Toby has a yeast infection now? Because he's all wet? I've <laughs> <laughs>
3: go.
2: got a horrible
4: yeast infection. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> okay. Let's record oh, a podcast, God. shall we? That's uh, a visual identity. Don't worry. We'll just, in, we'll just include your family party in the podcast. <laughs>
4: It's very ambient. Partners, Partners in, in crime media. media.